Hi, Scott Walker here. Welcome back to our podcast, You Can't Recall Courage. I hope you had a great 4th of July, and I hope you're continuing to enjoy this Independence Day week. Um, special uh, birthday greetings to my friend, Wisconsin speaker Robin Voss, whose birthday is today, the 5th of July. And uh, speaking of birthdays, again, I hope we all were able to celebrate more than just burgers and brats and being out in the boat or out and uh, a parade route. All those things are great ways to celebrate the 4th of July. But I hope we each spend a little bit of time recognizing uh, well, really how important it was that our, our, our founders, those great patriots, had the good sense to declare their independence and uh, help us create the great, the United States of America. I often love to point out that uh, in America, we celebrate the 4th of July and not April 15th, because in America, we celebrate our independence from the government, not our dependence on it. Uh, thinking about that Declaration of Independence, it was kind of fun this week I saw as well uh, that uh, there was a uh, Major League Baseball game over in London, similar to what they've been doing in the past uh, with uh, the National Football League. Major League Baseball did the same, but one of the great takeaways, one of my great images I saw wasn't of the players, it was actually of a fan who had a Yankees, appropriately, a Yankees shirt made up. And the number on the back of his shirt, which was in the photo, was the number 76. And in letters at the top, where one's name would normally be, it said 17, 1776. How great to have a 1776 Yankees shirt in London right before the 4th of July. You can't beat that. Speaking of stories like that, uh, one of my favorites, you know, thinking about our independence and, uh, and uh, all that's happened since then was uh, uh, in the book, The Team of Rivals. Uh, if you read the book, you know it's a huge book, wonderful read. Um, some of you may not have read the book, but maybe saw the, the movie Lincoln. That was just a, a small snippet of the, the book in its entirety, but obviously a very important part in that movie. But in either case, uh, obviously the book in great depth, uh, the movie references a little bit as well, but uh, there's a point uh, in Lincoln's life where I love, he's sitting around and he loved telling stories. And um, it, it's hard to tell whether this one was true or not, but he, he loved telling the story about what happened to Ethan Allen uh, after the war. Um, he said, Ethan Allen returned to England after the war and the British made fun of him. One day they put a picture of George Washington in, in the water closet, an outhouse. Uh, where uh, Ethan Allen would be sure to see it. And he'd gone back and forth a number of times. And finally, uh, you know, after all the times he'd gone to the outhouse, he'd said nothing. And so then the, the, the British, uh, the Brits, asked him about going to the water closet and what he thought about uh, the, uh, the picture of General Washington, George Washington being there. And Ethan Allen said he thought it was a very appropriate place for an Englishman to hang the picture of George Washington because nothing will make an Englishman crap, he actually used a different word, crap so quick as to see the sight of General Washington. I love that story, and I love the fact that Abraham Lincoln loved to tell the story, whether the story was accurate or not. Certainly, it's, uh, it seems clearly accurate that uh, President Lincoln loved to tell that story over and over again. But it is great thinking about Washington and Jefferson and all the other great uh, founders of these great United States of America and how that's continued through time, uh, whether it's with uh, American greats like Abraham Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt or more recently uh, Ronald Reagan, plenty of great examples of Americans who stepped up to the cause. And so I hope you've had uh, a great Independence Week and will continue to uh, going forward. 
Um, since our, our last week, we one of the big things uh, that has happened and kind of got some chance to analyze was the court ruling. The United States Supreme Court on a four to three decision uh, ruled basically that that the federal courts, not only the U.S. Supreme Court, but the federal courts should not be involved in the issue of, of redistricting, at least in terms of its political consequences. Certainly if someone's civil rights uh, were, uh, were threatened in any way, uh, I know in the past, of uh, the past several decades, as I've seen redistricting involved uh, here in Wisconsin and across the country, that appropriately is one of the things to make sure that, you know, it's a, a one vote, one person, uh, that uh, people of color are f- adequately represented. Those things are all make sense, and those are things that, that not only have Democrats, but Republicans actually have made great pains to make sure we're put in place. Uh, but the court ruled uh, for all the hype and hysteria in places like North Carolina, and we saw it in Wisconsin and elsewhere, uh, that the court said, you know, this is something that's supposed to be left up to the elected representatives, uh, which is, in full disclosure, I've been involved as the finance chair of a group called the National Republican Redistricting Trust. And uh, we've argued for some time, as I had even before I joined working with them, doing some work with them, I, I'd argued that redistricting should be left in the hands of the people that we elect to hold office. Uh, and that means when it comes to redistricting, drawing the boundaries for not only state legislative districts, but for congressional districts, house districts across the country, that should be left to the people in the state legislature who we elect. The alternative uh, has been to, to either go to the courts, where oftentimes liberal activists uh, are the ones who, uh, who play a role in that, or increasingly, uh, by this push for so-called nonpartisan commissions. There, there really is no such thing as a nonpartisan commission. There's always a partisan angle on that. And so what you really have is non-elected bureaucrats making the decisions about where boundaries should be. Instead, the people that we elect to hold office, uh, be they Democrat or Republican or independent or anything else, they should be the people voting on districts. In most states, it's a matter of the legislature and then the governor she or he can can choose to sign it or veto it, whatever the terms are in their state. But those should be the people involved. And the court agreed with that opinion. They said, you know, this is really not our place to play a role. This is something that, that's clear the role of the legislative bodies out there in the states across the nation. And as long as there's not a violation of constitutional rights, uh, they shouldn't be involved in it. Um, that, to me, is really incredible because— what I'd seen over the years, and I saw it directly in Wisconsin, we, Eric Holder's got this strategy, he and his group, where they pick a state and they sue until it's blue. And they've got a whole process. Uh, Holder and former President Barack Obama have gone out over the last few years, and, and they've raised about $200 million. Uh, roughly half of that they spent on litigation. The other half or so they've spent on, on legislative and gubernatorial and sometimes court races, predominantly at the state level. You see, their whole strategy has been to go state by state by state and keep chipping away. And, and their goal, you know, sometimes people, when they, they saw Holder coming into Wisconsin over the last few years and coming into other states, they, they thought, well, in Wisconsin, that must be because he wants to join with the other liberals and undo Act 10, which were the reforms that we fought for early in our tenure as governor, early in the eight-year time period where I was on office as governor of the great state of Wisconsin. No, that that's really not the case. I thought, well, maybe it's because he cares about the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which uh, can be uh, appointed, but but ultimately those individuals have to stand for election or if there's a vacancy, 
uh, or, or the positions left open going into election, uh, those are elected positions other than those appointments made uh, midterm uh, when a governor gets to make an appointment, but they still ultimately stand for election. So last year, Holder comes in, major money spent on the Supreme Court election last spring. It was one of the things I, I warned about a concern about a, uh, a rising blue wave, not only in Wisconsin, but across the country. Uh, Holder's candidate, an activist, activist liberal just, justice, who had been a judge before that, Milwaukee County, the largest, uh, biggest Democrat county in the state. Holder and team get behind this candidate. She wins. Um, they come in the fall. They're involved in the gubernatorial election. Uh, really, the game plan was uh, conservatives, and conservative not in a political sense, but in terms of conservative meaning justices who don't believe that the, the court should do more than, than just uphold the law, uphold the Constitution of the state and of the country, and those laws duly enacted within it, no more, no less. Uh, they had a majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Last year, there was a opening because a, a judge, a justice, excuse me, uh, decided not to run again. And so there was this wide open election. Liberal gets elected. First time in about 20 years, a liberal gets elected in an open seat. Uh, so some real concern. Then you go into the fall and you've got a split between a Republican legislative body and a Democrat governor. And you can see this strategy develop here in Wisconsin that's happening elsewhere in the country where we're now Holder and his team, his cronies knew, that they had to win this spring in the Supreme Court and the next spring. And if they did that, uh, they would have control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The idea being that if they did that, um, Republican lawmakers would, would pass a map, the Democrat governor would veto it, it would get sent to the court, and the court would draw their own map because they're activists, and that would be a map that would favor Democrats. In fact, uh, arguably there's any number of experts that show you could, you could pick up anywhere from one to two seats in the U.S. House of Representatives just by how the maps were drawn in the state of Wisconsin. We saw that in the past. You know, in 2018, all the talk in the House elections was about President Trump and his impact uh, on the elections. And obviously, any president has some impact. Um, we, we see it historically, a little bit of a, a bump for the opposing party. But, but what people missed was Holder did in other states, what I'm talking about in Wisconsin, where he came into states like Texas and Florida, North Carolina and Pennsylvania, and in those four states alone, the impact of the work that they did, either directly or indirectly, played a role in 14 seats uh, going from Republican to Democrat. That's because their goal is to gerrymander Democrats into long-term control. Uh, I think one of the, the best examples of that is if you look at, in Maryland, at the third congressional district, it's a district that that uh, Democrats and Republicans alike have, have, in fact, I think one per, at one time the Washington Post, Post called it a crazy quilt. Um, one of the publications said a, a local politician compared it to a blood spatter from a crime scene. What you have is a district that really is only brought together by, by bodies of water. Um, you know, oftentimes when we talk about redistricting, we talk about communities of interest, keeping groups together, um, Oftentimes in Wisconsin, one of the attacks they make is two of our counties in southeastern Wisconsin and in Senate districts that were in Racine and Kenosha counties, ignoring the communities of interest that if you go east of Interstate 94 in places like the city of Racine and city of Kenosha, you have large urban areas that are highly densely populated. 
you go west of Interstate 94, you have much more rural districts, small towns, rural areas, a lot of farming and agriculture. And so uh, those boundaries, east and west of 94, things that people that, who live in that area in southeastern Wisconsin are very accustomed to, uh, that makes sense that, that you'd have communities of interest aligned. Uh, one of the attacks that Eric Holder went out after me on last week, after on Friday after uh, the Supreme Court decision had come out and we were pushing back and pointing out how this was a great victory, but it was a victory of one battle. It's, it's certainly many more battles are going to be waged at the, uh, the state and local level. But Holder went after me and said, oh, you know, Wisconsin somehow in his mind is an example of, of, um, of gerrymandering and, and with the boundaries that were drawn. Uh, and, and their classic lame argument in Wisconsin, in North Carolina, in other states across the country, is that you get these battleground states where the elections for governor, for president in the, within the state, for U.S. Senate, all these statewide elections often are, are really, really close, you know, within the margin of sometimes less than a point uh, percentage-wise. And so then their argument is, well, how can there be so many more districts held by Republicans than there are Democrats. And uh, the example I gave on, on uh, Friday in social media, I, I'm a, at Scott Walker on Twitter. I'm on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash Scott K. Walker. I'm in all these different sites out there. And so I put up a picture. I'd invite you to go back and look at it. It, it, it really personified. And obviously, I can't hold this up for a podcast, but let me describe it. So it showed all 72 counties in the state of Wisconsin, where they went in the last statewide elections, and it showed this really, really deep blue uh, in the south-central part of the state of Wisconsin. That's where Madison, the state capital, is. That's Dane County. Well, that's because Madison's a little bit like, like Berkeley or Greenwich Village or others. It's extremely, extremely liberal. And they had huge voter turnout, in part because uh, the liberals put on uh, referendum questions on marijuana. They got all these college students to come out, much bigger percentages than ever before, um, much bigger volume than in 2014's the last similar election out there. And so the margins are unbelievably big in Madison. And, and this is not new. I mean, back you go back to 2000 and uh, in the 2000 election for president, I think there were some wards in the Isthmus, which is the area between the two lakes or near this, uh, the, uh, the state capitol and the University of Wisconsin campus. There actually were some areas where the, the voting not only went Gore was above Bush, but Gore and then Nader we're both above Bush. That just shows you how far out there. There are places where they're still long after the 2016 election where Bernie Sanders signs up. You know, in many ways, they thought Hillary Clinton was too moderate, you know, too right of center for them. And so this is an extremely liberal area where the margins are, are, are unbelievably large. Well, you look at that map and you realize the rest of the state, the votes are kind of pretty evenly scattered throughout the state of Wisconsin. Uh, there are few areas that lean slightly Democrat, few areas that lean slightly Republican. But nothing has the kind of intensity like you see in, in, in and around Madison out there. And so that's their flawed argument. While those votes count the same, a, a vote in Madison counts the same as a vote in a very rural community or in a suburban community, uh, those votes all count the same, which is why they have an impact. And it's something to factor when people look at the statewide implications, be it for governor, for U.S. Senate, or even for president, coming up this next time, certainly watching Madison and, and the intensity of the turnout will have an impact there. But in terms of legislative districts, um, just because a bunch of votes are packed into one given area doesn't mean the rest of the state has, a, has to have an equal 
uh, number of legislative districts held by Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and in fact, you actually take it further out in some of the years that are maybe not as intensely, but are Democrat held, or at least the margins show in statewide elections, they're more Democrat than Republican. You have Republicans winning there, showing they're going against the odds. They're just good candidates. Uh, in many cases, folks that were, uh, one of the examples in southwestern Wisconsin was someone who'd been a, a, a local small town mayor for quite some time and does a good job of that, is very highly regarded and part of the reason why he wins along the way. Contrast that to what we saw in Maryland, where the Democrats in the 3rd Congressional District really, I mean, that's classic gerrymandering. I, I think about this from Politics Government 101. You, you look at a, a map that makes no sense. In this case, it's really only connected by bodies of water out there. That's what redistricting is all about, uh, and uh, that's the difference. But, but in the end, if Republicans are able to run in fairly drawn congressional districts and fairly drawn legislative districts, I believe overwhelmingly they're going to have success uh, in future elections because common sense conservative reforms work. Speaking of upcoming elections, I, I want to talk about uh, Joe Biden and the presidential elections and the primaries that we saw this past week and what we just saw this week in terms of new news coming out about the polls and what impact uh, those uh, primary debates may or may not have had. Um, but first, I want to take this quick break, and we'll be right back on You Can't Recall Courage. Hey, Scott Walker, back here on You Can't Recall Courage. Uh, excited to tell folks. I'm glad you found us. You may have just gone to our website, scottwalker.com, where our podcast is posted every Friday morning at 9 a.m. Central Daylight Time. But if you're looking for other ways to access our podcast, it's, I'm proud to say it's, it's available in many different places. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, uh, all those places, plus scottwalker.com. Again, Fridays at 9 a.m. Central Time, and we're glad you joined with us today. Whether you're joining us uh, right at 9 uh, Central Time or whether you downloaded it and picked it up somewhere else uh, at some other time, I sometimes do that as well. I like to, to run, so sometimes I'll put a podcast up. Other times I just play some music when I'm running in the morning or, or maybe listening as you're driving somewhere. Wherever you're at, we're, we're, we're glad that you join us and, and uh, hopefully that you'll tell your friends and others uh, to pick up uh, You Can't Recall Courage as well. So last week, uh, Democrats have this wide open field. They have two nights uh, filled, stages filled with candidates out there. Uh, the latest polls uh, from the Hill-Harris ex-poll showed that uh, the biggest winner appears to be, at least, uh, Senator Harris, uh, probably because she had this, uh, you know, the media loves to point on to controversy or conflict. And so in the second night of the debates, obviously her pushing back against Vice President Biden and uh, arguing about what his position was on busing in the past, uh, more than the topic, was really the fact that there was friction and some intensity. And, and uh, you know, I found in the past, not only uh, four years ago, but even in previous elections that the the national media loves to have a narrative that's easy to sell and so oftentimes they have this queued up in advance and it's not just a reaction to what's actually happened but but the Harris camp kind of implied they were going to go after Biden as did others they were queued up they they knew that Biden was going to be the centerpiece at least on that second night you know the first night uh, there was a lot of time given to Senator Cory Booker Elizabeth Warren by at least by some of the pundits uh, seemed to be uh, 
seemed to pick up some traction with voters as well. I, I didn't watch either. I, I got to tell you, I, 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 um, the debates to me are, are much more a game for the media than anything else. But it does give for some interesting discussion in the polling that was done after. So uh, this weekend on Saturday and Sunday, the 29th and 30th, this past weekend, they, uh, they did a poll. Uh, the Hill-Harris X poll came out, and it showed that Joe Biden is still head and shoulders above the rest, at least if you believe the polling. He's at about 33 uh, percent of those polled who are going to be uh, Democrats voting in the primary elections. Uh, that's a drop of about two points. Uh, he was at 35 percent in the previous poll. For all the hype and hysteria about how he didn't look good, he didn't react well, this was not a good debate for him, uh, how some people were reacting in terms of fundraising, seems to be a little bit overblown if you believe the polls. And in the sense that he didn't drop dramatically, a little bit of a drop. Others suggest a little bit different than this poll. But Bernie Sanders was at 15%. That's up by two. Harris went from 5% to 11%, so the biggest jump. That's to be expected because she was the one that they made the biggest hype about. Elizabeth Warren went up by two from seven to nine. Um, again, in that first night, not nearly as dramatic, not nearly as much coverage. Uh, but she appeared to get uh, kind of the nod for, for being the, uh, uh, the uh, so-called winner of the night, if there is such a thing. Mayor Pete went up to six, again, up by two. Beta went down by two to four. Cory Booker's at two. The, the rest are just kind of scattered out there. And what you're going to find is, as time goes on, not just in these debates, but you know, these debates for some of the folks lower down in the polls is a chance to make kind of make your mark which what, more than anything, what it will help with is to see if they can translate that into fundraising. If they can use it to pick up more dollars, not only low-dollar uh, donations that are overwhelmingly on the Internet, which is important because people want to see uh, the candidate they like doing well, uh, but also in terms of the bundlers. Uh, those are the people that go out and raise the, the maximum amount, which surprising for president, it's not as much as you think. You're only talking about a few thousand dollars. Uh, oftentimes, statewide elections... Uh, in many states actually are able to raise more per person than they are at the uh, at the national level when it comes to the president. But but that's why having uh, hundreds if not thousands of people that are commonly referred to as bundlers, meaning the people that go out and raise money either through events or, or go out personally and make calls, reach out to people and say, hey, I'm here for this candidate or that candidate, can I help you out? Uh, that is incredibly important to have some momentum because those the key is any kind of a bump and the polls that come out of debates or, or drop uh, can, more than anything, is made or, or, or not based on the, whether or not it has financial impact. If somebody gets a bump in the polls, but they don't use it to raise more money or they don't use it to recruit more people to help them raise more money, they don't use it to go out and organize in places like Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire and Nevada early on, uh, it really becomes a bit of a waste. So the key will be to see, not just in the immediate poll this week, but what happens over the next month or two? Does that translate into more grassroots volunteers? Does that translate into more low-dollar donations on the Internet or elsewhere? Does that translate to more people stepping up and helping? What I find interesting in all of this, though, is that Joe Biden is still the guy to beat. But, but I've said from day one, early on in this process, when I was uh, hosting one of the radio shows in southeastern Wisconsin, I, I said Joe Biden is probably, arguably, uh, the uh, the most potent potential candidate against President Donald Trump, but I don't think he'd make it through the primary. I said it then, and I still believe it today. Despite his performance last week, I mean, he's gone through this before. 
remember that uh, in 2012, that, <laughs> that wild uh, debate with Paul Ryan where he, he spent about, I think about 90% of the time was Joe Biden talking. And people wondered about that. Well, the fact of the matter is, um, he's still the most known name. If you're someone who believes, again, if you believe in polling, he's still the guy that's most likely uh, to be able to defeat Donald Trump. The reason why I don't think he ends up getting the nomination is because I believe he's not liberal enough, which is remarkable for the guy who is the vice president for Barack Obama. Uh, but really, uh, and we saw it this week, you know, going back in his record over uh, several decades uh, to where he made some comments questioning the need for busing, to looking at some of the other issues, look, looking even back in the 90s and uh, when he was judiciary chair and his efforts on uh, criminal justice and being a part of the crime bill that locks more people up uh, today, particularly some of the mandatory minimums, which not just liberals, but even some conservatives are, have raised concerns about. Uh, those are things that I think in a primary where the voters are increasingly liberal uh, is going to hurt him. And uh, I, I think in the end, as the field whittles down, he's still, you know, he's still two to one ahead of, of the next closest, Bernie Sanders. But I believe as the field whittles down, overwhelmingly those votes are not going to go uh, to Joe Biden. They're going to go to Bernie or to Senator Harris or Senator Warren, whoever else might be one of the top one or two remaining alternatives to Joe Biden out there. And I just believe this field, these these Democrats have so convinced themselves that Donald Trump's going to be defeated. They've so bought into their liberal rhetoric uh, that they they don't want to settle for just someone who can win. They want someone who's going to be as fiery and as intense and as extreme on the issues as they are along the way, which I think is a huge win for those of us right of center. Um, you know, if you look, obviously Wisconsin, I'm biased, but it's true. If you look, Wall Street Journal just pointed out this last week, you know, four of the most important states in, in Trump's victory in 2016 were Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. In those states, you're talking only about a quarter of the percent, only about a quarter of the voters in exit polls identified themselves as liberals. Those who said they were moderates in, in those states, respectively, was about 10 percent higher than that. So moderates, I mean, in the end, liberals or you know, whomever on, on those debate stages, those two nights, is the Democrat running against uh, Donald Trump. You can't tell me uh, that a Democrat's not going to vote for. The question is, will moderates? Because in a state like mine, you know, there's the, the, uh, the kind of 40-40-20 rule, which is squeezed more and more in the middle. It's less than 20. But it was, historically, it was about 20, or excuse me, about 40% would go Republican, about 40% would go Democrat. And the remaining 20% were, were up for grabs. I think that, that margin has become less and less than 20%. I think it's similar in other battleground states across America. But to get to those voters, uh, you've got to have a candidate that they believe to be reasonable or that's doing well for them and their family. And um, I think if the Democrats continue to believe that after they lost in 2016, the answers to go further to the left are going to be sorely mistaken. And that's going to be, uh, I think, a good deal for, for those of us who can't stand the idea of a socialist, not just Bernie Sanders, but you listen to I mean, the whole list of them. Uh, increasingly is going more and more to the left. I think that's got to be that's going to be a, a, a good winning strategy is be the contrast between protecting the American way of life, the American Free Enterprise Center, the republic uh, that our founders envisioned, 
uh, back in 1776 versus the failed socialism that we see on display in places like Venezuela today. Well, that's all the time we've got uh, for this latest podcast. I hope you'll join us again next Friday, 9 a.m. It'll be up on scottwalker.com or those other sites, uh, other opportunities for you to get it, uh, everything from Spotify to Apple Podcasts and the whole list I mentioned before. I, I hope you have a, a safe and wonderful rest of, uh, of, of the week. Uh, and uh, again, we'll talk to you next week on You Can't Recall Courage. God bless America.